0: This is the Monday, November 16th, 2015 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning.
1: Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Of course, you can also listen to us on iTunes, Spreaker, Android, You can even tune us in on many new model car stereos right there in the dashboard when you listen to iHeartRadio like you listen to any other radio. Of course, today, we're not in a car or a truck, but a time machine, and the book Fueling Our Flux Capacitor takes us back 75 years to the Second World War. The battlefield where liberty and tyranny clash, though, isn't Midway or Normandy Beach. It's not Guadalcanal or North Africa. It's the hallowed halls of the United States Supreme Court. Our guide into this world is Kermit Roosevelt, author of the historical fiction novel, Allegiance. Allegiance is a legal thriller built around the internment of ethnically Japanese people, 62% of them American citizens, under Franklin Roosevelt's infamous Executive Order 9066. Speaking of FDR, Kermit Roosevelt happens to be distantly related to him through his great-great-grandfather, Theodore Roosevelt. But as when I interviewed Jonathan Sands, Winston Churchill's great-grandson, today's guest isn't just someone with a lion in his family tree. He's an accomplished fellow in his own right. Mr. Roosevelt is a constitutional law professor at the University of Pennsylvania and winner of the Philadelphia Athenaeum Literary Award for his previous novel, In the Shadow of the Law. He also clerked for Justice David Souter on the United States Supreme Court, an experience which infuses his character, Cash Harrison, with an air of truth seldom found in fiction, much less fiction written about a time decades before he was born. Okay, now that we've read the background brief, so to speak, and we're settled up in the gallery, let's meet Kermit Roosevelt and talk allegiance. I'm joined on the line now by Kermit Roosevelt, author of the World War II novel, Allegiance, that I'm currently enjoying, sits right on my nightstand. Uh, Thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today.
2: Thanks. I'm very glad to be here.
1: When I attended your event at the Anne Frank Center in Manhattan, you started off with the obvious, namely that you're not of Japanese ancestry. And I thought about that a little, and I thought, it makes sense, because this is an American story, really. You approached Allegiance that way. This is Americans that we're talking about, 62% of the people that are sent away to these camps. So do you think that's a fair assessment? How did you come at writing this? You never seem to have thought, well, gee, I shouldn't write it just because of who I am.
2: Well, I think that's true. You know, one of the things to keep in mind that people really forgot during this time was, these are Americans that we're talking about. And in that sense, it's everyone's story. But, you know, there is a Japanese-American experience that's distinct. There's a Japanese-American story, the story of what it was like for these people. And that's an important story. Other people have told that maybe better than I could. The story that I was trying to tell was really how it happened, because this didn't happen only to the Japanese-Americans, only in World War II. This is the sort of thing that we do over and over again. And I was interested more in the psychological dynamic that drives this reaction we have in times of fear when we start persecuting people who are different from us.
1: I interviewed David O. Stewart about his book, Madison's Gift, about James Madison. And he talked about how Madison was reluctant to draft the Bill of Rights because he said, well, in times of crisis, we're going to just discard it anyway. So this is sort of going to be just words on paper. And I know there's a big cult around the founders for a lot of people that maybe don't get into it that deeply. But as a constitutional lawyer, I would think that when you started reading about this, you saw those wheels that Madison had put in place sort of coming off and being ignored.
2: Yeah, it's very true what someone once said, which is that a nation can be no better than its people. We've got a constitution which is supposed to protect us from our worst instincts in times of crisis when we make mistakes and overreact. We've got a government that's designed to mitigate the excesses of temporary hysteria. But in the end, none of that is going to work if we as a people really want bad things. If we lose our heads, then no Constitution can save
1: us. And when we look back, I find it, I think it was Michael Crichton who said, nothing is as sobering as a six-month-old newspaper. You look at that front page and all the headlines that we're screaming about, and then people just sort of move on. And I think today, if you ask people about Enron, for example, most of us would have a hard time putting it together. We'd at least need a beat. And yet at the time, I remember that all those executives were going up there and taking the Fifth Amendment, There were polls asking people if they should do away with the Fifth Amendment because self-incrimination seemed at the time that they were getting away with something. And that's definitely something in your book. And it's something that your character, Cash Harrison, he struggles with. I mean, from that first moment that you meet him, the word has just come that Pearl Harbor has been attacked. And Cash really embodies that sense of running out to do something. He's not sure what. He doesn't know where the recruiting office is. As I read that, I thought. How much of that is your experience on 9-11, that feeling, and how much is your research into the Day of Infamy, December 7th?
2: Well, it's both, because in fact, there's a very strong parallel between Pearl Harbor and September 11th. In both cases, it's this shocking attack. It hits us on American soil. It makes us realize that we're vulnerable in a way that we didn't think we were. And so there is this reaction that something must be done, but people don't know what to do. So, you know, people run outside, they sort of mill around, they line up in front of the White House, they go down and stand in front of the Japanese embassy. People do all sorts of things, you know, well-meaning, but sort of purposeless. They don't really know how to help, but they really want to help. And then the government, of course, has sort of the same reaction. There are some things, obviously, that can be done, like we declare war on Japan. But in both cases, the government also feels a lot of pressure to be seen to be doing something, you know, to be getting some bad guys. And if the people who've actually hurt us are far away, if they're inaccessible, then there's a very strong temptation to find people who seem close enough, you know, to find people who can stand in for those bad guys so that the government can show you it's got them.
1: And I would think the people in government, we sometimes look at it. You talk about that, certainly, and Cash Harrison goes through this. I always think of Peggy Noonan when she she's relatively young. I guess she's in her 20s when she goes and works at the White House. And she says the first stage is you're in awe. Then the second stage is you say, well, we can do this; we can run the government. And she says, the third and final stage is, oh my God, we're the ones that are in charge. This just seems crazy. Cash, of course, in your book is a clerk to Justice Black, and his father tells him when he goes, or maybe it's his girlfriend's father says, no man is a hero to his valet. One thing about Cash, though, his way of speaking and his way of acting—I mentioned to you a little bit off the air that. Very, very much takes me back to the 40s, and of course, you're only in your early 40s yourself, so to write about the early 40s, not something you experienced, but you used a lot of subtle phrases in there. One that jumped out at me was, of an evening, which we don't say anymore. Tell me a little bit about how you researched the 40s.
2: Well, I did a lot of research into the 40s with just sort of academic books about what life was like in the 40s, but even more useful than that, I think, was I tried to sort of steep myself in the culture the way someone living in the 40s would have. So I watched a lot of movies from the 40s, a lot of Cary Grant movies, and I read novels written around that time because that, I think, really gives you a sense of how people thought and how they spoke, looking at the popular entertainment of the time.
1: Did you love Cary Grant as much as Cash before you started writing the book, or (laughs) did that come after you started researching Cary Grant movies?
2: I didn't love him as much before. I I mean, I, I really found, I understood why people loved him so much. You know, everyone wanted to be Cary Grant, even, as he said, Cary Grant wanted to be Cary Grant.
1: Yeah, the Philadelphia story, I'm sure you liked that one. That was another, I think, parallel there between you and Cash, I guess. I was going to ask you, who loves Philadelphia more? Philadelphia is sort of this citadel for him, and it represents his old world, I guess you'd say. And he ends up in Washington, D.C., which is completely different. And in the middle of the war, you really feel like he's taking you there to the war. It's very well done. And when you get to the internment, then... That's when he starts to turn, and I think it'll surprise people that the idea of sabotaging these cases a little bit came from real life. There wasn't uniformity in the U.S. government that this was a good idea to drag these people off their land and stick them in camps,
2: was there? No, there was a lot of opposition within the government, and this is something that I think people need to understand looking back. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, we're just judging with the luxury of hindsight, or, you know, you can't imagine what it was like then. But the truth is, at the time, and this is another parallel to September 11th, actually, even at the time, there were a lot of people saying, we shouldn't do this. This is wrong. This isn't necessary. This is un-American. Even this is unconstitutional.
1: And that brings us to the infamous executive order, 9066. When we talked after the Anne Frank event, I said how I had read it recently. And then it so happened the next morning, I came across it again, just when I was reading your book. I just was cleaning out some papers and found where I would printed it and highlighted some things for another project. And when you read it, and I would encourage people to do that, it's very insidious and a little eerie because it doesn't spell out anything. I, you kind of would expect it to say, OK, remove the Japanese off their land. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say anything about Japanese-Americans. It doesn't say that specifically anyway. It doesn't name the Japanese. He just kind of signs it when somebody writes it, and he looks away And hands it over there to the military governors because there's a district and the western states, of course, are all for it for various reasons. But it was that wording that I thought, having you on the line and you being a constitutional lawyer, if you could talk a little bit about it, because it really is, I think, a warning or part of the warning that, as you said, we look away from the Constitution, we write something new, we write it maybe in haste. And of course, most of our bureaucrats, I guess, don't have the genius of a James Madison to foresee this being abused. So talk a little bit about the language of 9066 and how it was abused, how it left the door open to abuse.
2: Well, it is a little bit insidious because it says that the general shall have the authority to exclude whoever he deems necessary. So on its face, it doesn't say anything about race. But it's true, as you said, at the time, everyone understood we're talking about the Japanese and the Japanese Americans. That's who's going to be forced to leave. So you know, it's a little bit of sort of window dressing or making it look better than it is. Because if you had an order that just said, exclude all the Japanese and Japanese Americans, that might look worse to a court. But, you know, when you say to the general, whoever you think is necessary, we're not saying any particular race, it's up to you in your military judgment. Then it looks as though the selection of the Japanese and Japanese Americans is tied much more closely to military judgment rather than racism when, in fact, racism was the prime motivating factor.
1: I liked that when I went into the book, it was a book that was not just going to tell history in a fictional way, but that it was going to make me think about these things maybe in a way I hadn't before. And I found myself thinking about FDR because something that always bothered me about people who, Lionize him is they tend to just not mention any of his connection with this instead of looking at him warts and alls, of course, Lincoln said. And you had a succinct way of stating it that I've heard you say before, where you say even good people can do bad things since it's your family name, of course, on that, it would have been easy for you to look away from it. And yet you're able to have that thought in your head and say, well, nobody's perfect. And certainly he wasn't a flawless person. And you can see where this got abused. But I just wanted to ask you how your feelings were about that. Is that part of what drew you to
2: this? Yeah, that is part of what drew me to it. It's something that I feel some sense of connection to. And the idea that good people can do bad things is a very important one because what happened to FDR really was... He trusted people who seemed like him. He trusted the social elite, the establishment, the officials in the War Department, the people who had similar backgrounds to himself. And what the whole episode shows really is you can go very far astray by listening to people because they seem like the right sort of people.
1: You can't really always trust your friends, either when you're president or people you think that you can trust when you have a million things going on. It happens so often. You hear it about Harding, you hear it about Grant, you hear it about Nixon. When we write things, too, in haste, and this was another connection to 9-11 that I wanted to ask you about, after 9-11, Congress passes this joint resolution. And if you read it, I believe it's on the 14th, if you read the Authorization for Use of Military Force, it's also extremely broad. And it applies to any president, Really, it hasn't been yanked off the table. But it says the president can use all force against the people he deems played a role in the attack and also to prevent future ones. And since we don't have language in the Constitution about a declaration of war, this struck me at the time as incredibly broad, and it struck a lot of people as incredibly broad. And it could have been abused, and people will argue that in the years since, with the drones and the expansions into other countries, that it has been abused beyond what the Constitution would be. So I wanted, since you draw these parallels to 9-11, wondering if you could compare the two a little bit.
2: Well, it's interesting because there, again, you have non-specific language in the authorization for the use of military force. It just says to the president, basically, go get whoever you think did this. And in part that was because of necessity, you know, they didn't know at the moment exactly who was responsible for it. But it did have this consequence that you mentioned, which is its open-ended language, and as the years went by, the war on terror sort of expanded and stretched, and ultimately Obama for instance was pointing to the authorization for use of military force as a justification for airstrikes against ISIS. And ISIS, you know, they're bad people and it might very well be a good idea to have air strikes against them but they're not al-Qaeda in fact you know they're fighting against al-Qaeda they've got conflict with al-Qaeda so you certainly see how this open-ended language is used to justify all sorts of things that the government wants to do but maybe congress hasn't actually told them they can do
1: and for 9-11 also unlike Pearl Harbor Congress was sure that they had been in the crosshairs. They may have known it, for all you and I know, that where that fourth plane was headed. So I felt like at the time they very much thought there are these monsters out there, bad people, not to look down at them. And instead of just sneezing, which I guess, again, you'll have to read Allegiance to get that one, but (laughs) to make the monsters in the closet and under the bed go away, they sort of just handed the presidency this big cudgel to use and said, make the monsters go away, President Bush. You can't always rely on the courts any more than you can Congress because these things may not come to their desks. Isn't that so?
2: Yeah, you can't you can't rely on any single part of the government, I think. And you can't necessarily rely on the government as a whole either. I think in the past, in times of crisis, we were very lucky with the leaders that we had. You know, we had Lincoln during the Civil War. We had FDR during World War II. I think in the aftermath of September 11th, we were a little bit less lucky with the leadership we had in government. I don't think that we had the great kind of response that we've had in the past.
1: Well, World War One, I, I guess one of the few positives maybe was you had many people who had sort of experienced war before at least. They sort of had that shared experience, which obviously we lack. And there was another example in the book, speaking of the Poorly crafted language, and that's the loyalty oath. Explain to people a little bit about that and how it really put this impossible choice on the people who were in the camp.
2: Well, that was just a terrible miscalculation that the government made. I mean, it's a classic example of government ineptitude. What they were trying to do was to isolate out what they believed was a small number of actually disloyal Japanese Americans in order to make it easier for the rest of them to go back home to California when the war was over. So they administered a questionnaire to all of the Japanese and Japanese-Americans. And there were two questions, number 27 and 28, one of which was, will you force, wear loyalty to the emperor of Japan and pledge allegiance to the United States? And the other was, are you willing to serve in the United States military? And they administered this question to everyone, to men, to women, to Japanese-Americans and to Japanese. So this created some problems because, of course, the Japanese were not American citizens the ones who had immigrated, they weren't allowed to become American citizens. So they were being asked to force loyalty to their own country, pledge allegiance to a country with which their country was at war, and say that they were willing to serve in, in its military, which, of course, was treason. So many of that first generation, the Japanese citizens, of course, said no. It was the appropriate thing for them to say. And then their children, who were American citizens because they'd been born here, didn't want to be separated So a lot of them said no also, and they were right to do that because the people who said no were classified as disloyal and sent to the special segregation center in Tula Lake. So they would, in fact, have been separated from their family if their parents had said no and they had said yes. So it put them in a very, very difficult situation, and a lot of people said no, not because they were actually disloyal, but just because the government had made this mistake.
1: And they were fearing that they might get sent back to Japan. And had they gotten off the boat and everybody knew that the reason they got off the boat is because they'd answered that they would fight for America and that they were renouncing the emperor, they wouldn't have had a very good time of it either. They were really trapped by that question and by the wording of it.
2: Yes, yes. The government kept on trying to figure out ways to determine who was loyal and who wasn't. And it's really sort of amazing how every time they got it wrong.
1: That's clear throughout the book, too. There's many times when Cash is looking at it and he's watching them sort of try to untie this knot. He meets with various people and they said, well, we tried with that, but then it didn't work. And it often comes down to just not wanting to admit that you're wrong or not knowing how to let go of that tiger that you have by the tail. And one reason why we don't hear much about the interments is that they were regarded as shameful by the people that were there. And it stands out to me that the internees, whether it be... Normanetta, former congressman, or George DeKay, they simply refer to it as when we went to camp or when we were in camp, which always strikes me as such a, I don't know, prosaic way. It's like the Fresh Air Fund or something, when obviously it was, it was anything but. They were stuck in horse stalls often, and of course, cash goes and visits some of these places in Allegiance. They weren't anything that was nice, especially for small children, which both of them were at the time. You've met some of these survivors now. So what strikes you when you speak to them? What did you learn from them?
2: Well, I'm, I'm impressed by the lack of bitterness. And, you know, I think the, the way that they talk about it as going to camp is, is part of that because they're trying to minimize the injustice that was done to them. So, the, you know, the first generation, they did feel a sense of shame. They felt that they were being stigmatized and branded as disloyal, which they were. You know, they were being branded as suspicious. And their reaction to that, generally speaking, was to feel shame. And it took a while for the sense of the community to change to outrage and indignation to feel that they had been wronged and their rights had been violated. And there's no shame in that. So what we're seeing now, I think, is later generations articulating this view that they and their parents and their grandparents didn't do anything wrong. The United States government did something wrong. And they shouldn't be afraid to talk about it, to share their stories. But at the same time, I'm impressed by how conciliatory they are, how little bitterness they have.
1: And speaking of George Dekai, I saw his play also called Allegiance in Previews. Like your book, it's really everything you'd hope for in history, everything you'd hope for in drama, and really enjoyable. I was so impressed with it. But it's a completely different story than yours, I wanted to let people know, and the title's just a coincidence, right?
2: It is just a coincidence, yes. Actually, we learned about his title just a couple of weeks after we had picked our title. And I thought maybe we would have to change it, but it turned out that we didn't.
1: And that's fine with him, by the way, right?
2: It is fine with him, yes. We actually did get in touch with him. And he said that he hoped there would be synergy between the projects, which I certainly do hope. I'm going to actually be moderating an event with him in New York, January 27th. Oh, great. So I'll I'll have a chance to talk to him then.
1: It was really amazing. I, I didn't know what to expect when I went in. And I think part of it was that thing, that sort of bias that I admitted which isn't necessarily about FDR himself, I came to realize reading your book, but it's just about the people that don't want to face that part of history, that want to sort of pretend that it didn't happen because he was perfect. It's sort of a cult of personality, and he faces it very straightforward in there. And I was pleasantly surprised, I guess, by that, that it really told the full story. It didn't try to whitewash anything in there, so to speak. I enjoyed it very much, and I hope you will enjoy that event with him. I'm I'm looking forward to it.
2: Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing the show, too.
1: I'm speaking with author Kermit Roosevelt, and his novel is Allegiance. Nelson DeMille wrote of your book, quote, My favorite World War II historical novel was Herman Woke's The Winds of War. Now I have two favorites. Kermit Roosevelt's Allegiance is an instant classic, unquote. Now, there's a lot of very nice things that are being said about Allegiance, but the reason that one jumped out is because it brings up your influences. I heard you say you always loved writing fiction, which kind of surprised me for a lawyer, although there are many lawyers who write fiction. But what novels did you read to develop your own style, because you definitely have your own style, and to build Cash Harrison's world?
2: Well, I read an enormous amount over the years as I was growing up and, and trying to develop as a writer. But I usually do have specific models in mind for the kind of books that I want to write when I'm working on a particular book. And it was especially gratifying to hear that from Nelson DeMille because it's an extremely nice thing to say, and he's someone whose judgment I really respect, but also because The Winds of War was actually one of the books that I had read and was studying and was trying to achieve something similar to. I wanted to have that kind of panoramic sweep. I wanted to have the kind of significant historical content that Herman Wilk had there. I also wanted to have it be a little bit more lyrical and a little bit more about tarnished American ideals and corruption and the loss of innocence. So I was trying to do it a little bit like The Winds of War and also a little bit like Robert Penn Warren, say All the King's Men. That was what I was going for. So it was great to hear that someone who thought The Winds of War was good also liked this one.
1: Yeah, it must be. As I said, it really jumped out at me. So if people obviously enjoyed Winds of War, they'll want to pick up Allegiance. And it reads really like a novel out of another time. Of course, it's supposed to be historical fiction, but it doesn't read like it's a book that was written just now. So I think you really do get swept up. And it's a part of the war that we're not used to looking at, that we're not used to really thinking about. You know, we do put the greatest generation up on a pedestal. And one thing that I got as I was reading Allegiance is – I always take a little bit of pride that whatever we did after 9-11 when we were attacked out of the blue, we didn't repeat this panic of internment. There was very little even anti-Muslim violence where, as you'd see, people taking advantage of really their neighbors here in – California and the other states along the West Coast, and treating them as disloyal and just attacking them because of their color. And I wonder if, as you read all that background material about America here 75 years ago, did you notice that this is a change? Or do you think it's fair to say it's a change really in how we define American and nationhood and the idea of us versus them today than we did, say, back in the
2: 40s? I think we've gotten better at it. I think that we face the same problem and and we're experiencing the same dynamic, though, that in times of crisis, in times of national insecurity, we draw the us-them line tighter. And it's not enough that people are American citizens. A lot of times we think they're not real Americans if they don't look like us, if they don't have the same religion. And we have seen that, I think, not to the same extent, but we have seen that with Muslim Americans.
1: In Allegiance, you have Justice Felix Frankfurter state, quote, the court is a place of great responsibility. It is a temple of truth. We work here, must dedicate ourselves to worship and service, unquote. And I was talking about a lot of those reviews, and I see that pops up quite a bit. So I wanted to ask what inspired it.
2: As far as I recall, that's something that Felix Frankfurter actually wrote. Oh, wow. So most of what my justices and my government officials say is taken from their speeches or their autobiographies or their diaries or their correspondence so a lot of what Frankfurter says, and I think that line in particular is taken from his diaries or his correspondence.
1: Because I did look it up and I didn't find it. <laughs> All that came up was reviews of Allegiance saying how great it was. So I just thought that maybe that was you fictionalizing him. So great. A uh, character that you have in there that, that is fictional but based on a real person is the character of Clara, who at first Cash Harrison is surprised to learn is a clerk at the Supreme Court. He mistakes her for a secretary. And I was surprised to read that she was had a real-life inspiration. Tell us about her for a minute.
2: So, Clara Watson arrives at the Supreme Court as the first female clerk and th- that's the year when the first female clerk did actually arrive. Like Clara Watson, she was a clerk for Justice William Douglas. The real first female clerk, her name was Lucille Lohmann. Like Clara, again, she's from Seattle, she's from the West Coast. Clara is not intended to be modeled on her, I just thought it was a nice historical similarity. Because Clara certainly does things that Lucille Loman didn't do, things happened to her that didn't happen to Lucille Loman. But I thought it was nice that the first female clerk did really arrive at the time I had her showing up.
1: And another thing that I heard you mention in one of the interviews that blew me away that I hadn't heard it, but retired four-star general and former Democratic presidential candidate Wesley Clark, he called for the creation of internment camps for disloyal Americans, or I guess you'd say floated the idea. And I work in the news business. I didn't hear a word about it. And I thought, why? Why do you think it was just reacted to with a yawn, especially because here's a man who won his home state of Oklahoma, which is the destination, I guess you'd say, for the Trail of Tears, forcible removal of Cherokee. You think that this would be something that hit home with them. Why do you think we didn't hear much about this?
2: Well, I was pretty astonished that it didn't get more media attention. And I think it's in part something that should make us realize that the media doesn't necessarily focus on what other people might think they should focus on. Media coverage is slanted by a whole set of factors that aren't necessarily producing accurate information for the American people.
1: Yeah, He's not particularly a sexy figure, I think, looking at headlines myself and knowing what it is that gets to people. If you have to go out of your way, as I just did, it occurs to me and tell people who he was. And he's a significant figure in the military and in politics briefly, but it just doesn't jump out to people. They sort of say, well, Wesley who? And he couldn't possibly mean it. But
2: I was shocked that nobody nobody mentioned it. Yeah, you'd think he couldn't possibly mean it, but he didn't really back down. You know, people asked him about it in that interview, and subsequently he was asked for clarification, he didn't really back down from it. And yeah, the benign explanation, I suppose, is the media just doesn't think he's important enough and no one's going to do it, and we learned our lesson. But Wesley Clark, respected mainstream Democrat, I think it does tell you something about the way some people are thinking, that he actually floats this idea.
1: You speak of the similarities of interning, of course, non-citizens in Guantanamo Bay, and I think that was a line a lot of people drew early in the War on Terrorism, but that evolved, talking about this open-ended language, it evolved now into drones targeting American citizens who are associated with terrorism and, as you say, maybe awful people, but things that probably the people who wrote these memos and write these executive orders never really considered. You write columns on these subjects. You are, of course, a professor. I'm sure that you go out and speak about these things, but you chose to write about this in a novel. Why?
2: First, I was hoping that with a novel I could reach a broader audience, because not that many people, to be honest, read legal scholarship. But second, I think that a novel can teach us things in ways that scholarship can't, because people respond to stories. People understand their own lives in terms of stories. They understand the way the world works in terms of stories. And so very often, I think, by telling a story, you can change the way people think without trying to explicitly convince them or persuade them of something. And sometimes people might have ideological opposition to being told something flat out, and they might be more receptive to a story.
1: You write also that, quote, it was especially painful for me to see the government doing things I thought were misguided, doing things I thought were wrong in the war on terrorism. And that's a pain Cash feels in allegiance that we can step back a little bit and experience him with him, sort of this loss of innocence and this disappointment in this place that he looks up to and these people that he looks up to and doesn't at first think he's worthy to be there clerking at the Supreme Court. What do you hope readers will take away from your novel, uh, that feeling you're talking about, about trying to reach people and get them to think, which I did enjoy doing when I was reading Allegiance?
2: Well, I hope they'll understand that the government is not perfect. The government makes mistakes. Often the government is not very willing to admit those mistakes, and the government may do bad things to cover up its mistakes. So there is a certain kind of skepticism about the government that I hope that people will take away. But that's not a skepticism about America. So the other point that I, I hope people will take is that the government is not America. We the people are America. And we can be better than our government. I believe we are better than our government. And our task as a people is to try to get the government to be as good as we are. And it won't do that on its own. So rather than just following, rather than just accepting what the government tells us about the way the world is or what needs to be done, we need to engage critically with that. We need to inform ourselves, we need to educate ourselves, we need to think about what needs to be done and what kind of a people we want to be.
1: One thing that always struck me about Theodore Roosevelt is after President McKinley's assassination, T.R. could have really made war on anarchists outside the Constitution. He could have started rounding people up, especially Emma Goldman, who the assassin cites as his inspiration. But he shows restraint. And to me... It's incredible because you look then a little farther down the line at Woodrow Wilson and Goldman in particular starts speaking out against the draft and he deports her despite her U.S. citizenship. He sends her to Russia for speaking out against the draft and he tramples on so many civil rights. And this isn't just prodding you, but I was wondering if it's possible for you to give us a little tease of what you might write in the future. And if you look at a period like the First World War and maybe think about writing about that.
2: Well, there's a lot of fascinating material there. Um, You know, there's a lot of fascinating material with Theodore Roosevelt's life, too. But I actually found writing historical fiction so much more difficult than I expected that I think I'm probably not going to make my next novel more historical fiction. It just required so much research for every scene that I wanted to write, for every character I wanted to describe or every setting. I had to spend so much time trying to get the details right that I was actually thinking that my next novel might be fantasy.
1: Well, why not? If you did half as good a job as you did here, you'll build a beautiful world, I'm sure. Thank you. I went to the event at the Anne Frank Center. I sincerely picked up this book. And I don't just do every book that's laid in front of me. But Allegiance was particularly good, and as I said, I went to the play, so it's also a period that I find very interesting. I have one final question for you, if you would indulge me. We'll be choosing a new president next year. And since it goes with the theme here of allegiance and without asking you to name candidates, how do you think we pick one from a constitutional law perspective who takes that oath to uphold the Constitution seriously and doesn't discard it in times of crisis such as a Pearl Harbor or a
2: 9-11? I think all of our candidates love America and want to do what's right. The difference is between them that's relevant, I think, to this question is who's going to govern based on fear? Who's going to react based on fear? Because it's when we get scared that we think it's necessary to put aside the constitution or to put aside the laws that prohibit torture. It's when people want to feel that they're doing everything they possibly can be doing, that they think that laws or the constitution are standing in their way. And if you're not making policy based on fear, then you don't fall into those traps. And I think you actually make much better policy.
1: Well, Kermit Roosevelt, thank you for the wisdom. Thank you for the entertainment and the information and the thought-provoking character of Cash Harrison in Allegiance. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me tonight.
2: It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Again, the book is Allegiance. As always, you can find the link to purchase your copy on our website. HistoryAuthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. We get a few ration coupons for coffee every time you do. And if you don't get that joke, well, one more reason to read Allegiance. You'll be in on it. Once again, thank you to Kermit Roosevelt for joining me and for sharing the story of the internment camps. Like all good historical fiction, it really gives us something to reflect on and makes us want to learn more. In 1988, America recognized the wrongs described in Allegiance when President Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act to compensate more than 100,000 survivors of the internment. The act gave a formal apology and $20,000 to each living member of the World War II era removal. Here's a portion of President Reagan's statement at the signing ceremony, where he was flanked by Congressman Norman Mineta, who was sent to the camp as a child, and Senator Daniel Inouye, who lost an arm fighting with the Japanese-American 422nd in Italy after FDR lifted the ban on Japanese-Americans serving in uniform.
0: My fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave wrong. More than 40 years ago, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry living in the United States were forcibly removed from their homes and placed in makeshift internment camps. This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race, for these 120,000 were Americans of Japanese descent. Yes, the nation was then at war, struggling for its survival, and it's not for us today to pass judgment upon those who may have made mistakes while engaged in that great struggle. Yet we must recognize that the internment of Japanese Americans was just that, a mistake. For throughout the war, Japanese Americans in the tens of thousands, remained utterly loyal to the United States. Indeed, scores of Japanese Americans volunteered for our armed forces, many stepping forward in the internment camps themselves. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team, made up entirely of Japanese Americans, served with immense distinction to defend this nation, their nation. Yet back at home, The soldiers' families were being denied the very freedom for which so many of the soldiers themselves were laying down their lives. Congressman Norman Mineta, with us today, was ten years old when his family was interned. In the Congressman's words, my own family was sent first to Santa Anita Racetrack. We showered in the horse paddocks. Some families lived in converted stables, others in hastily thrown together barracks. We were then moved to Heart Mountain, Wyoming where our entire family lived in one small room of a rude tar paper barrack. Like so many tens of thousands of others, the members of the Minetta family lived in those conditions, not for a matter of weeks or months, but for three long years. The legislation that I am about to sign provides for a restitution payment to each of the 60,000 surviving Japanese Americans of the 120,000 who were relocated or detained. Yet no payment can make up for those lost years. So what is most important in this bill has less to do with property than with honor, for here we admit a wrong. Here we reaffirm our commitment as a nation to equal justice under the law.
1: For the 25th anniversary of that historic moment, the National Archives put the document bearing President Reagan's signature, and Norma by the way, on display alongside Executive Order 9066, bearing FDR's signature. Like Kermit Roosevelt's book, this side-by-side display was a stark reminder not to repeat the mistakes of the past when our moment comes to stand up for America's founding principles. When we have our generations, rendezvous with destiny. Remember, let us know what you think of Allegiance and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. Well, that's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us next week for another trip into the past here on iart Radio or wherever you're listening. And if you subscribe on iTunes, please leave a review. So until next Monday morning, thanks so much for listening.
2: and happy reading. the same on the Sign west
1: sign things ain't like before there are tears in the eyes of the regular guys oh new york ain't new york anymore